Hello everybody, my name is Eric Mercier, uh, co-owner of Juice Imports, and uh, this is going to be the September edition of our Natural Wine Club. Uh, today in the studio, uh, <laughs> loosely using that term, uh, I have uh, the other co-owner, uh, Mark Couillard, also from Juice Imports. Hello everyone. Uh, he's feeling exceptionally awkward about doing a podcast. Uh, it's... <laughs> It's a very uh, strange feeling speaking, you know, into an empty room, uh, just at a microphone. So, uh, you know, we have some wine in front of us to hopefully lubricate the the situation. Um, but yeah, so we're gonna jump right into the wines. Um, we're gonna start off with our uh, our red wine for this month month, which is uh, Gamay Centralala um, from Domaine de la Guerrelière. Uh We've had one of their wines in the wine club before. It's um, I think they make some of the most consistent wines in our entire portfolio when it comes to recommending wines that people should try from us. Uh, if they're not particularly adventurous wine drinkers, I think Domaine de la Guerrelière is the perfect place to start because the wines are still uh, profound, they're still complex, um, there's still you know a ton of nuance to them, but at the same time, I think even sort of your novice wine drinker that's maybe more uh, timid around some of the crazier flavors, they would still get along with these wines really well. Uh, so to give you a little bit of a rundown about what we have, um, uh, Domaine de la Guerrelière is run by uh, Francois and Pascal. It's a husband and wife team in the Loire Valley in France. The Loire Valley is sort of just south of Bordeaux, uh, or sorry, just north of Bordeaux. Um, and it's all along a river that runs sort of east-west. Uh, Mark and I drove there last year on an epic road trip uh, through France. Uh, Mark was doing all the driving, and by the end of it, I think by the time that we got to Domaine de Guerrelière, this was the point where we no longer had anything to say to one another. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's been a lot of a lot of small country roads with cornfields. Uh, not not a whole lot to talk about. Not a whole lot to uh, point out. Yeah, and so getting to Domaine de Guerrelière was really interesting because um, we'd spent the night in in Tour, uh, which is sort of a, a classic like old school uh, Loire Valley town. Uh, you know, there's things like castles and old cobblestone streets and that sort of thing, like everything you'd expect out of uh, out of France. Um, and unlike most of the, the wine regions or the, the vineyards uh, in the Loire Valley, this uh, particular vineyard doesn't really cling to the river the way that the other ones do. Uh, you know, places like Vouvray, places like Anjou, um, places like uh, Puyfuissé, um, and Sancerre, they're, they're all basically right next to the river, or at least a, a tributary, versus um, where Domaine de la Guerrelière lies uh, in Touraine, it's actually south of the river by like an hour drive? Yeah, it was a pretty long haul, like I said, on small country roads through yeah, the middle of nowhere. Definitely. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we kind of had to really go out of our way to actually find this vineyard. Um, I was, when I was doing the write-up for this wine, I looked in the wine atlas, uh, and their map of the Loire Valley actually doesn't include the town that they're in because they're like very much on the, the southern extremity um, of the actual region of Touraine within the Loire Valley. Um, anyways, uh, in this area, you've sort of seen a lot of different soil types. The one that they're most famous for is probably Silex, uh, which is uh, flint stones. Um, so it's, uh, you know, Although the grapevines aren't necessarily like pulling actual mineral flavors out of the soil, 
something about the the geology there really lends to the minerality of the wines um, and that's something that I love about this particular region uh, so yeah husband and wife team they've been farming biodynamically for the last 25 years uh, the property that they're on uh, their winery was built almost 400 years ago which is absolutely insane because Canada hasn't been Canada for you know, <laughs> barely even for that long, so it's, it's absolutely mind-bending to me. Well, you remember the murals on their uh, um, uh, their tanks? Yeah, were from like three hundred years ago or something like mm-hmm. that. It was some crazy uh, that didn't even seem real. Something crazy that didn't seem real. Yeah, they uh, in, in their actual cellar, uh, sort of built into this this hillside, they have uh, cement tanks to do fermentation in. Cement is, is really old school. Uh, they've been people have been fermenting wine in uh, cement tanks since Roman times, and um, so these guys are, are following sort of that tradition. But there's these beautiful murals painted on the outside of these humongous cement tanks. Uh, it was one of the coolest things that we saw on the trip for sure. I think Mark got a got a good picture of it, so maybe we'll post it on uh, on Instagram at some point. I was slacking when it came to photography, so I had to rely on his. Uh, photographic prowess i suppose well you spoke all the french so it was, yeah it was a yeah, trade-off exactly yeah yeah i was i was busy you know trying my best to speak french with uh pascal she was very patient with me so i really appreciate that uh and uh their son who has just joined the winery as well um he was speaking english i want to say that he like went to school in new york or something like that so yeah yeah like some somewhere in the u.s so his english was fantastic so he was uh he, he sort of filled in some of the blanks along the way for us. Uh, so this particular wine is made from Gamay Noir. Gamay Noir is uh, a grape that's very famous um, from Beaujolais. Uh, so Beaujolais is like a four hour drive away or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't quite remember, but we basically drove from from that region to, uh, to the Loire Valley, uh, which took a lot longer than it looks on a map. Um, it's like kind of like driving across Alberta. It's kind yeah. of how it felt. Turns out France is big. Yeah, turns out France is big. Still smaller than Alberta, but that's the thing is when we think of Alberta, it's usually like Edmonton to Calgary, like yeah. like Edmonton, Calgary, Lethbridge, and that's like a five-hour drive. But really, that's like half of Alberta. So it's, we forget about the top half more often than we should, I think. Um, anyway, so the, this great variety that they have planted here is Gamay Noir. Uh, Gamay Noir, I, I believe, is the second most planted red grape variety in the Loire Valley, which surprises a lot of people because they're not usually available on the export market. But the thing is that a lot of the, the bistros there, like that's the wine that they carry is Loire Valley uh, Gamay Noir because it's bright, it's fresh, it's juicy, it's usually low alcohol, although uh, we'll talk about in a second this year is an exception. Um, but yeah, it, it tends to be really juicy and, and really friendly and really pleasant. Uh, this particular vintage is a little bit different than most of the vintages that we've had. Uh, well, I guess we've only had one vintage from them before, but of the vintages that we've tasted from them, uh, this is a little bit different. It's like over 14% alcohol, <laughs> uh, which is very high for Gamay Noir and very high for the Loire Valley. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk about what Gamay is normally like. <laughs> well, uh, well, though, I guess kind of down in Beaujolais, especially amongst the crews, you're seeing alcohol levels creep up a little bit um, or in warmer vintages, I guess. I've actually been surprised as I've seen some of the crews up at like 13, 5, and 14, but mm-hmm. typically, yeah, you're talking like 12 to 13. Like, yeah. I don't know, at least, uh, yeah, like Co or Gamay that I've seen from the Loire Valley for sure is like 
12 and a half, 13%. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. river influence a little cooler because it's a little further north. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And really accentuates that, like that herbal side, that sort of uh, rustic side of, of Gamay. But I uh, obviously haven't had, well, haven't had the chance to taste this in bottle yet, but I imagine it's going to be a little, a little thicker, a little, a little more potent. <laughs> Good for the upcoming winter. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. But we, one of the things that I've realized is that we sort of neglect to put too many full-bodied wines in, into the wine club, uh, mostly because they, they don't pair particularly well with a lot of things. And, and often wines at higher alcohol percentages, it's, it's harder to drink a lot of them. And a lot of the people that are in the wine club are, um, you know, either single or just a couple. Like they're not sharing the wine between, you know, a dozen people. So you want a wine that they can actually, you know, crush a whole bottle of in a night. And uh, so often when they get up into that, you know, 14 plus percent alcohol, that's when uh, it gets it gets a little intense for uh, easy consumption. But um, yeah, this year, basically because of the heat, uh, things got ripe real quick. So normally from them, you know, their gamay is sitting around 12 and 12 and a half percent alcohol. And then this year it's uh, creeping up to 14, super rich, super thick, super juicy. Um, I don't know. I think a lot of people are going to be like very enthusiastic about this. When we had the Mother Rock Grenache in the wine club, everybody lost their mind and absolutely adored it uh, because it was a little bit heavier, a little bit richer. And uh, this is definitely going to going to follow along with that for sure. Uh, I don't know. Do you have any more stories to tell about uh, Domino Guerrillier that uh, I've neglected to include? Uh, no, I just kind of second what you were saying about uh, um, them certainly being, I don't want to say the most approachable wines, but certainly like everyone you talk to that has tasted these wines before talks about how classic they are, how um, true to form they are in terms of their grape varieties. Um, and uh, and definitely they're kind of a go-to whenever I'm introducing someone that I feel, you know, um, needs sort of like a little slower approach into the portfolio, needs something a little more classic. Um, and definitely... Uh, a producer I talk about any time um, people are giving flack to the idea that natural wine can't be, you know, classic in flavor and style and all mm-hmm. of these things. Like, uh, say, like, <laughs> you could pour this for anybody and, like, a hundred out of a hundred people would be like, oh, this is just great wine. Yeah. Um, I mean, if it's any indication, my dad uh, brought uh, the Cab Franc to his, like, company dinner party, you know, not telling anybody what it was, and everyone went absolutely crazy for it. Um, just a beautiful wine, so... Lovely people, beautiful classically styled wines. Um, yeah, hard not to love them. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that uh, one of the things that makes them so amazing is just sort of like their connection with one another and then their connection with the land. The idea that it really is just like a family, that the only thing they do really is is just focus on, on farming um, and on this one particular plot of land. Um, they're basically the only farmers in this town uh, or at least grape farmers in this town. Everybody else that we saw was farming like sunflowers and, and wheat. Uh, and so they kind of are isolated in a way. And, and I think that leads to sort of their almost like spiritual connection to the land. It, and I think that really shines through in their wine, their sort of ded- dedication. Um, they're also super into art. Um, I believe Francois's brother is an artist and actually designed some of the labels, but uh, they have a lot of friends who are, are these amazing sort of like classic uh, French painters. And um, so you'll often see their their art on the label. Um, and just to tell you a little bit about the name too, Gamay sans tralala basically means Gamay without tralala. Uh, <laughs> tralala probably implying uh, 
all the additives and, and all the adjuncts that, uh, that end up in a lot of the wines, especially in the Loire Valley, that's um, very famous for natural wine, but also very famous for very commercial wines. Because it's so cold there, they often have to add sugar, uh, coloring, all those sort of things in order to make the wines more palatable. Um, and they were definitely notorious uh, for that for quite a long period of time. Not only that, but with the uptake of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, uh, the Loire Valley, where, where Sauvignon Blanc is in theory from, um, the Loire Valley, even though they're the more classic region, they've started copying uh, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, which is very heavily manipulated in most cases. Uh, they use particular types of yeast, um, they're using particular types of enzymes in order to clarify the wine. And so the Loire Valley has sort of turned into uh, this region that's on both ends of the spectrum simultaneously, where that's probably the highest concentration of natural winemakers. Uh, you know, I can name probably three dozen natural winemakers in the Loire Valley, uh, but at the same time, you know, it's the big commercial guys who are also in there. So it's a, it's a really interesting region for, for that reason. Um, in the write-up, we talk a lot more about the uh, actual region itself, so definitely make sure to read that, uh, as well as uh, I give you uh, a bunch of history about the different chicken species that live in the Loire Valley. So I won't get into that in the podcast, but uh, believe me, there are 300 words written about chickens uh, when you thought that you were actually getting uh, wine information. So uh, Next up, we're going to talk about uh, Strekov. Um, Strekov is located in Slovakia. Uh, when Mark and I went and visited uh, Zolt last year, uh, the winemaker at Strakov, um, and founder and proprietor and everything else, he's, he's just a wizard basically. Um, we drove from uh, Vienna straight to uh, Slovakia, uh, to where his uh, winery is, which is in a town called Strakov. Um, and then in the middle of the night, we drove all the way back. Uh, to Austria, which is not a short trip. It was like two and a half hours? At least, yeah. Yeah. Through Hungary. Yeah, through Hungary. You have to drive through Hungary on the way by. Uh, both Slovakia and Hungary have a uh, zero alcohol tolerance. Uh, so unlike here where... What's the blood alcohol? 0. 0.08. 0. 0.08? Yeah. yeah, theirs is 0. 0.00. So <laughs> if you've even had a, a thimble full of wine, you're not allowed driving. And so Mark had to be the uh, designated driver. And uh, at this particular time, we were, we we're traveling with a bunch of our friends. So we had, I don't know, six people in a van uh, cruising at one in the morning through Hungary, uh, music blaring. Uh, our friend uh, Jesse Willis, uh, proprietor of uh, Vine Arts, uh, as well as Donna Mac and Proof, uh, he was acting as DJ in the front seat, and everybody was just texting him, asking him uh, for, you know, song requests, I suppose. Uh, and it, it was mostly really bad 1990s and uh, early 2000s music. Uh, a, a lot of uh, Ashley Simpson and uh, <laughs> I don't even remember who the other ones were. But, uh, uh, Avril Lavigne. Lots of Avril Lavigne. That was really, really good. Uh, who was Stank, I think, yeah. uh, was probably in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Marcy Playground, probably. <laughs> I don't know. Well, just think of that era. That's the stuff that we were listening to. And Mark was less than impressed with uh, all six of us being completely wasted singing along to these really terrible songs on our drive back from, from Strekov. Nobody, <laughs> nobody fell asleep, though, so I have to give props to everyone for, uh, for keeping me, you know, 
awaken alert because <laughs> mm-hmm. it was impossible not to be awake and alert with all of that going on yeah that was a, that was our whole goal is we wanted to keep the energy high so you didn't fall asleep on on that two and a half hour drive starting at basically one in the morning yeah good times yeah <laughs> uh anyway so we mark and i first tasted this wine um or not this particular wine but wine from this winery when we went to slovakia uh like three years ago um and sort of on a whim via a friend of ours um like an instagram friend she suggested that we come uh meet up with her in bratislava uh which is the capital of of slovakia and we had no intentions of going to slovakia but i kind of heard rumors that slovakia had some pretty cool wine uh she was uh sort of a wine geek and and running sort of her own wine blog and stuff like that so we felt like she would be the perfect person to introduce us to to the slovakian wine culture uh, so we met up with her. She poured us a couple really cool wines from Slovakia. And then uh, we had basically the next day to, to sort of hang out. We ended up at uh, some wine bar. Wine Not. Uh, oh, yeah. W- wine Not. Uh, classic. Really great naming, for sure. Um, in this, like, beautiful courtyard uh, in, in Bratislava. And um, it was, you know, ever so slightly raining, but it was so hot out that we just we, we just wanted to be outside anyways. And so we're just like sitting on, you know, sitting outside um, and we order a bottle of Strekov, um, the Nigori, which is like their unfiltered sparkling wine uh, with lots of lees. And the whole idea was that he wanted to really copy sake and how they have the lees in sake to add texture and, and flavor and that sort of thing. And when we tried it, we were both just amazed. Like it was so good. The price to quality ratio was outstanding. Uh, and we're like, okay, maybe one day we'll get to work with these guys. And then two years later, we went to uh, the Raw Wine Festival in uh, Montreal, and uh, Zolt was um, was pouring his wines, and uh, we wanted to go over and taste them and see if they were as good as we remembered, and they were even better than we remembered. And he was quite the character. He was <laughs> maybe the only person there not spitting. He was just like crushing wine. Uh, <laughs> He's just like, he's like, I'm thirsty and I'm bored. And, you know, I've poured wine for a thousand people. Like, of course I'm going to be drinking. So that was, uh, you know, we're like, yeah, this is a guy that we can get along with. He's, he's fun. He's entertaining. Uh, (laughs) anyways. So after tasting those wines, we're like, okay, sweet. We definitely need to import these. Like I want to, I definitely want to work with them. So we ended up ordering a couple wines, whatever he had. He didn't have a ton of wine available for us because his wines are are quite sought after. Uh, and then we went and visited him on that trip that we were just talking about. And, uh, you know, his vineyards were just super impressive. Like, I I can't remember being so blown away. All single-staked. Hand single-staked. Yeah, yeah. Every <laughs> single vine was on, like, a single piece of wood. Um, you can read about this on our website. We haven't included it in, a, in the write-up because there's just too much to say about uh, Jolt and his crazy life. Uh, <laughs> but on our website, we have a write-up about uh, how he uh, how he put all the vines on, on single stakes, which is a lot of labor. Um but it's resulted in some super cool wines and some super beautiful vineyards. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got there sort of right at sunset. So we were sitting in the vineyard and, and snacking and seeing these beautiful vineyards. Um, and when it comes to, I don't know, sort of balancing like very idiosyncratic characteristics uh, and drinkability, I, I think he's done an incredibly good job. Um, his wines are definitely not for the faint of heart. Like they're, they're super interesting. They're super out there, but at the same time, uh, there's, 
this level of appeal, this level level of comfort, um, where I think that even though they're not maybe familiar to a lot of people, uh, they're very enjoyable to to most people. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how to describe his wines as like a general statement, but it is it is true. I opened up the viola the other day, and mm. and same sort of thing. So I've now had pretty much his entire line this year, and uh, I was I was curious to see because I remember being blown away at the winery, but then of course you know there's the the moment and the time and, and mm-hmm. being in Europe and all the romanticism about that. Uh, I mean, that setting could have made any wine taste good, I think. But uh, um, so I was curious to try them in, you know, in bottle back here. And, and certainly they've lived up to uh, um, to everything I thought. But that's that's one thing I've noticed is every time I open a bottle, um, my senses don't really know what to expect. Not because of bottle variation or anything negative, just because the flavors and the character of the wine is just so different. It's always like very bright, very sort of like engaging right off the hop hmm. um and uh you know changes pretty significantly over a short period of time in in air uh and in the glass and uh, just every sip is kind of like a different uh, a different feel which is super cool mm-hmm. um, so i have a lot of wines that are fantastic and i love the flavor of and it's just sort of like okay that's that's the flavor and and i enjoy that and it's great um these are just energetic like you can almost feel the energy just like pouring off of them mm. yeah super cool yeah they're uh they're definitely some of my favorite in the portfolio. Um, the second that we tasted this at the winery, I knew that I wanted to put it in wine club. Um, it was just outrageous. Uh, and he said it himself that he was super proud of this wine and that he thought it was super cool and that these vines are really underrated. That um, so, so this is made from, uh, in, in the Slovak dialect, they call it Riesling. Um, but for most people, they would know it as uh, Welsh Riesling which is not related to Riesling, which makes it even more confusing. Uh, but either way, this is made from a grape variety called Welsh Riesling. And I think most wine pundits would say that this grape variety has no ability to make interesting wine. Uh, it's, it should just be for, you know, local house wines. It's, you know, it's, it's just garbage. But over the last couple of years, when people, when I've tasted uh, wines made from Welsh Riesling by people who really put the effort into uh, planting it in a good site, farming it well, uh, and then really doing their due diligence in the cellar, these wines have been just outstanding. I'd say that Velschriesing has been maybe the biggest surprise over the last couple of years from a, a great variety that I never thought could make good wine to now being a great variety that I, I actually seek out. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is just like the most spectacular version. Uh, you know, I think between this and then uh, Franz Wenninger makes a, a Welsh Riesling that we get like 12 bottles a year of that uh, I think Mark and I buy almost exclusively. And then uh, a couple friends down in Lethbridge get like a couple bottles each. Um, other than that one, like, uh, you know, this is definitely about as good as, as Welsh Riesling can possibly get. We got just enough of this for the wine club. Uh, we kind of went out of our way to order enough of this for the wine club. Uh, and it almost didn't work out. And then it just sort of at the last minute, we, d- we just had enough bottles. Uh, so it's, <laughs> we're very excited that we get to, to share this with you guys. Um, it's pretty much made in a classic white wine style in the sense that uh, they just directly crush the grapes, um, you know, ferment it in barrel uh, and then bottle it without fining or filtration. So it's, it's pretty minimal, um, but it's all about the actual quality of the grapes and about how clean they they keep their cellar and about you know just being diligent about topping up barrels and, and all those sort of things. And it's resulted in a wine that's just 
uh, absolutely confounding. I can't wait for you guys to read the tasting note on this because it's it's pretty wacky. I was I was in a mood when I read it, so <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's it's pretty outrageous. But that's fine. I think you guys will understand when you open it. So it's definitely the special bottle of the month. I would argue, yeah. like, yeah, it's just got a character. I mean, I go back to that liveliness, that that energy that comes off it. Um, and again, when you when you taste it, you know if you don't know the winemaking technique, you would swear that there's you know skin contact or there's there's some technique he's using that's different than others. Um, and when you realize that it's just like pretty much a straightforward uh, white wine, um, it just goes to show how what a difference the farming makes. And mm-hmm. maybe maybe not having any metal wires in your vineyard really does matter after all. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, crazy Jolt and all his. Uh... All those amazing uh, tricks. Yeah. Uh, and then cool. So last up uh, is a wine made by our good friend Ryan Sturm. Um, this is their kick on Riesling. Uh, so we thought that'd be fun to put uh, Riesling and Riesling uh, side by side, even though they're not the, not the same grape variety at all. Uh, we just wanted to make it confusing for everybody. Um, the second that Mark suggested that we put both these in the wine club, I was like, yes, that's a good <laughs> idea. Uh, yeah, so this wine is coming from Kick-On Ranch. Um, uh, Kick-On is uh, it's in the Los Alamos Valley, which is in Santa Barbara County in California. Uh, so think basically just north of L.A. Um, you know, I think you're talking about like an hour drive away from, from L.A. I'm not totally sure on that. I guess in LA, it depends on the traffic. It could be a six hour drive <laughs> if the traffic's bad. Uh, but yeah, like somewhere around an hour once you leave the city. Um, and what's really interesting with this is that this is one of the only, uh, I think they call them transverse valleys in uh, on the um, West Coast. And that basically means that the valley is running east-west instead of north-south. Basically the way that like that particular tectonic plate worked uh, means that most of the valleys run north-south, uh, but where this vineyard lies is, is again, I think in maybe the only, but if not, like there's not very many uh, east-west running valleys in, you know, on, on that entire coast. Uh, and what this means is that they're getting a ton of cooling influence from the ocean. So basically all those cold winds that are normally blocked by uh, either hills or mountains or, or somewhere in between, uh, all that cold air from the ocean can go directly into this vineyard. Um, and that results in these, um, I guess like delayed ripening conditions. So if it was just screaming hot the entire time, uh, the grapes would ripen really quickly and you wouldn't have a lot of time for the vines to um, you know, allow the fruit to develop flavor and complexity. But basically the slower that those grapes can ripen, the more intensity and complexity that you're actually getting in the in the grapes. Um, I, I remember there being sort of this like golden um, amount of like a hundred days between flowering and, and the time that you harvest. That was sort of like the ideal. Um, I'm sure theirs is probably less than that because it's still pretty hot in California. Uh, but again, like that idea that the longer you can let the uh, grapes stay on the vine without getting overripe, um, that's when you get the, get the most amount of complexity. Um, the other thing that makes this vineyard super unique is that it's planted on basically petrified sand dunes. So sometime over the last, uh, you know, 10, 10 plus thousand years, uh, wind has blown sand up into these swales and those swales through 
you know, rain and whatever it happens to be has basically like solidified into these hills. Uh, and that's actually what the vines are planted on. So you're talking about fairly sandy soils. Um, I don't know what they're, what the actual uh, like composition of the soils are, but either way, sand is a pretty good soil for things like drainage, um, you know, pre preventing uh, or allowing a lot of oxygen into the soil, that sort of thing. So sand is pretty cool to be uh, to be planted on. Uh, and this is Riesling. I'm, you're you're a big fan of Riesling, so maybe I'll let you talk about Riesling first. <laughs> yeah, I am a big fan of Riesling, and uh, um, which is partly why. Well, I think I think us together have. Uh, uh, and everyone in Calgary in particular has championed this fight, or everyone that loves Riesling in Calgary has championed this fight against the idea of, uh, of Riesling always being sweet. Um, I can't remember if you've told this story to uh, wine club members before. Did you have the rosé, Mr. Rosé in wine club? I feel like you maybe I, did. I don't point. think so. Okay. Maybe um, last year. Uh, well, just a quick note on that. So, uh, you know, <laughs> Riesling is a tough sell to begin with. Uh, you know, especially in a place like Calgary where we eat a lot of meat and drink a lot of big red wines. Um, and, uh, but obviously it's a big, it's a, it's a wine that Eric and I both appreciate. So it's something we want to have in the portfolio. Um, you know, and, and Eric can talk more about the, the technical aspects of this wine. It is totally dry. Um, but often, uh, the perception of sweetness comes from just really ripe, really rich fruit, um, which this wine definitely has in spades. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a, it's an unbelievably textural wine, um, which I really love. Uh, it's got a little more body to it. Um. You know, compared to some Rieslings from you know certain parts of Germany, um, but uh, um, you know the anecdote about the Sturm Rosé is is uh, you know even he realizes like Riesling's hard in the first place. Riesling from California is really hard, but he's super dedicated to it. Uh, so much so that he took grapes from his uh, or took took his top end Riesling, his Wurz Vineyard Riesling, um, blended in three percent Zinfandel and turned it into a rosé. Um, sold it for a slightly cheaper price and people have gone absolutely nuts for it and it just goes to show people always say they don't like Riesling they love Riesling they're just afraid of the idea of Riesling because yeah. again they they've probably had blue nun at some point in their life which which frankly I don't even think was made mostly from Riesling it was made from like uh, a mishmash yeah, like, of like yeah, weird German like grapes yeah like exactly yeah. um but uh but that's what I always think of when I uh, I mean <laughs> obviously I have my nerdier side of Riesling but when I think of sort of the general market of Riesling um, you know, I, I basically always think of Ryan Stern because I think of a guy in California who is kind of stuck by his guns and, uh, and is determined to make, uh, to make, you know, Californian Riesling. I think that's the other thing I really appreciate about him is people ask him, what style are you trying to make? You're trying to make, you know, Alsatian Riesling, you're trying to make Austrian Riesling or, you know, uh, Australian Riesling. He's like, I'm not, I'm, I'm trying to make Californian Riesling. I want to make something that, that factors in the fact that California is very hot, but also can maintain acidity because of that cool breeze so um yeah super cool wines mm -hmm. yeah yeah there's this really weird like misconception even amongst wine geeks that riesling is a cold climate uh grapevine meaning that it thrives really well in uh colder temperatures and this is true in the sense that it can survive a lot colder temperatures than most grapevines can but the other thing is that it's shockingly heat resistant um, Ryan was saying that in his vineyards in California, when they had that big heat spike uh, in 2017, that um, the, the Riesling vines actually did a lot better than the Zinfandel vines did, which is crazy because everybody thinks that Zinfandel is this sort of like heat loving vine, but it only likes it up to a point versus Riesling. It managed to maintain its acidity 
uh, continue making really fabulous wine. And, and for me, like I really liked that vintage um, from them, even though it was super hot. And this is one of the things that, that Ryan has discovered is that, you know, a couple hundred years ago when uh, people were starting to, uh, or I guess uh, Europeans were starting to move into California, um, they were, a lot of them were Germanic. Uh, and because of that, they saw the hillsides and they're like, holy crow, this is the perfect place for Riesling. And it's so unfortunate because it, it was the most planted uh, white grape in California up until the 60s, I believe. Uh, and uh, and it just basically never caught on because people kept trying to make sweet styles and California is just, it's not the right climate to make a sweet style of Riesling. Uh, the wine would just appear flabby and, and soft and uh, you know not really that drinkable. It doesn't have enough nerve to it versus when you make a dry style of Riesling like this, like this is absolutely fabulous. And it's, it's kind of a shame that uh, California is not known for Riesling anymore. Um, so it's, it's exciting that we get to, we get to drink this. Um, I also think that this is probably the most ageable wine we've ever put in wine club uh, in the sense that, you know, I, I would be happy holding onto this for 10 years. Uh, you could put this in your cellar and it's just going to uh, evolve. I, again, I hate to say the word improve because it's drinking so well now. And I just think that wines change with time. They don't necessarily improve. It's just, you get maybe more rarefied flavors and, and things like that. But it's, but you know, I, I think that this wine, again, definitely a decade, like it, it wouldn't be hard to age it for that long for me at least. Mm. Yeah. I've, I've had this with, uh, um, you know, it's definitely one of my go-tos for, uh, you know, spicy food, Thai food, Mm-hmm. that Thai, you know, Thai crab curry, you know, yeah. um, that sort of thing. Um, which is interesting because again, typically, you know, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to reach for uh, a sweeter style, you know, German, German Riesling, um, because you want that sweetness to offset. Um, but again, that perception of sweetness that like mm. those rich fruit flavors, I find it like it balances out really well despite being dry. Totally. Um, and, and even just having like a little more body to it, I don't know, it's kind of nice, mm-hmm. um, with some of those, those, uh, fuller dishes so yeah um, yeah I've, I've had really good really good uh, experiences pairing this with Asian food mm-hmm. yeah in my write-up I kind of went a different direction and said that this pair pairs really well with um, like German food like like mm. schnitzel oh, yeah like pork schnitzel with like well, again that would definitely, it has a little creaminess to it like it has yeah. that that body while still maintaining the acidity and I think that's uh, I've, I've actually had this wine with a lot of different foods and it's pretty versatile mm-hmm. that was the other thing i said was that this wine will pair with anything but if i have to choose something <laughs> yeah you know it's one of those ones where it's like it's if if it doesn't pair with this it'll actually be a surprise like yeah. it's, it'd yeah. be more surprising if a particular food didn't pair with this wine oh man um, i'll drink this with german food now yeah i think that'd be such a good combo i also said um uh like a barbecue pork chop with like applesauce mm-hmm. yeah. i was like i think that'd be a really fun combo yeah uh and then what else did i write i have it up in front of me Oh, I also said that uh, like the uh, both the vegetarian options at uh, Native Tongues for their tacos mm. would be really good. Oh, um, yeah, exactly. Hongos with this, like mm. or hongos. I don't know the yeah. pronunciation. <laughs> my my Spanish is. is <laughs> yeah. I should probably know that. But. Yeah, is in need of an upgrade. Uh, I definitely order them. Uh, <laughs> just don't know what I'm saying. One of those people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I get the Zinfandel? <laughs> Can I get the Riesling? The Riesling. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm that person, but with Mexican food, apparently. Um, cool. So I think that's mostly everything that we have to say. Um, 
you know, we kind of wanted to keep this one a little more ranty uh, and less technical. We, we do have the write-ups if you want to get more technical, as well as tons of information written on our website, uh, like stories about each of these producers on there. Um, but if you have any more questions, feel free to reach out to us. We're, we're happy to, uh, you know, do that for you. You can either reach us uh, via email at eric, E-R-I-K, at juiceimports.com. Uh, or you can send us, uh, you know, a direct message on Instagram. We're just at Juice Imports, um, you know, or whatever other method you can figure out of contacting us. If you can figure out telepathy, we'd be happy to respond with our thought waves. Um, but yeah, until uh, next one, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us and hope you all have a good rest of your day. See you, everyone.